Hi, it's Mike, and it's Saturday, or not. I can only control the output, the input of when you choose to affix these words to your ears. That's up to you. But ideally, it's the Saturday show, and this is a Saturday or thereabouts. And on the Saturday show, we'll bring you one of the best segments of the week and one of the best segments of all time. Now, I say best advisedly. Uh, This week, I talked about a shooting in L.A. that's gotten a lot of attention in L.A., but not so much national attention. That was part of my analysis. It was a long bit of coverage. It was a long spiel. I think it ran to the 14 minutes, but I wanted to put it back in the feed in case you didn't listen to the whole thing or couldn't get to the whole thing. Uh, It is, like I said, not just about this one particular shooting, which was tragic, although tragic is one of those terms that has more ambiguity than you think it might. It seems very pointed and it seems to encapsulate the most extreme of an emotion. That's true. But where to place the nexus of the tragedy is the question. And so a man in Los Angeles was tased often, I'm going to say, To the outside eye, to the naked eye, to the untrained observer, it seemed too often. He died four hours later, but my coverage of it concentrated on both comparing it to other instances and how I think the, at least, media attention and maybe even the attention of public officials have changed a little bit. But also I was very interested in the ancillary framing and storytelling of such an incident and how we portray the victim and how we try to fill in the details of the victim's life does or doesn't intersect with what we think of the actual actions. So that is the spiel from this week. And then, since Joe Biden and his documents are very much in the news, I went back to 2015 when Hillary Clinton and her server was something that we were told we couldn't ignore. In fact, the voting public wound up not ignoring it. But I wanted to play those words that I first said on this program oh, eight or so years ago, just so we can remember. I'm not going to say enjoy, but I give you for your consumption this week's spiel and then a spiel from all those years ago. Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? And now the spiel. Two weeks ago, an African-American man died in Los Angeles police custody. The man, 31-year-old Keenan Anderson, who is a high school teacher who lives in Washington, D.C., was stopped after police encountered him running in the middle of the street at the site of an accident which had been reported. Onlookers identified Anderson as having caused the accident, though there's some dispute now, which we'll get into, if this is what onlookers really were saying. 
We know all of this because the LAPD put together an extremely thorough, nearly 20-minute video showing body cam footage of the police's initial contact with Anderson, their discussions with him as he was told to stay in place while they investigated and waited for other units, his running into the street after his initial detention, and the tasings, the multiple tasings he endured. My interest in this case is that I always delve into allegations of police shootings of unarmed black men, and Anderson fits that bill. I also have noticed slight changes in coverage and reactions to these cases in the time since the murder of George Floyd. Since then, the police have begun to arrange presentations in order to convince the public that their actions were justified. That, of course, would have been impossible with the George Floyd murder. The LAPD's presentation was assembled with an emphasis on narrative and, if not transparency, then at least the appearance of transparency, as can be gleaned from the narration the viewer encounters right at the top of that video. Hello, my name is Captain Kelly Muniz, Commanding Officer of Media Relations Division of the Los Angeles Police Department. This critical incident community briefing is intended to provide you with information about an in-custody death that occurred in Pacific Division in the city of Los Angeles on January 3rd, 2023 at around 8.15 p.m. And what we do see from the vantage point first of a motorcycle patrol officer is a man running in the street. Other motorists and onlookers point him out. That's him, they say. He asks, the patrol officer asks, he's the one who caused the accident. It seems they say yes. Okay. The man, who we learn to be Keenan Anderson, says, somebody's trying to kill me and I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to. Anderson is jumpy, he's agitated, he doesn't comply with the officer's requests, which are requests. He's not placed under arrest, he's not charged, he's not even touched. Anderson says he wants to be seen, presumably to prevent brutality. There's a citizen whose face is blurred, but we see that she says, we're watching you. The officer asks, as you will hear, asks several times for Anderson to sit down, sit down right there on the sidewalk, which he says is a place where you can be seen. You want to be seen? Sit right there. Stay right there if you want to have somebody see you. Okay? Please. Just sit down for me a second here, okay? Please, look, sir. Sit down for me. Sit down. You're putting a thing on me. Sit down. Like I'm not hot. putting anything. Come Please. here. Sit down over here. Please. I don't want you in the road. Please. Come here. I don't want you in the road. Come here. Please. Come here. Please. Come here. Then Anderson runs. And this is where it gets very hard to watch. Anderson is held down by multiple officers. He's threatened to be tased, and then he is tased. At one point, he yells out, Help! They're trying to kill me! Hey, stop, I'm gonna tase you! Stop, I'm gonna tase you! Which he had been saying already, but then he evokes the name of the martyred black man who must come to mind when any black man is detained by police. They're trying to judge for me. They're trying to judge for me. But George Floyd was kneeled on. He suffocated right in the street. Anderson, though tased, was taken to the hospital conscious. We see that. Like Floyd, onlookers taped the incident, but none of their footage was nearly as clear as the LAPD's. There was even, in one of the pieces of civilian footage included in the official presentation, a conversation between an onlooker and an Uber driver. That guy right there, he caused that accident. He was trying to steal my car. That guy right there, he caused the accident, the driver is telling someone else on the street. He was trying to steal my car. I'm not sure if the police had tape that wasn't quite as exculpatory as that, and if they chose that tape to leave it out. I'm totally speculating, but this one was at least in the presentation. Something to go on 
It's a piece of evidence. In the subsequent investigation, the police disclosed that a toxicology report came back positive for cannabis and cocaine. Anderson was not behaving calmly. He was not behaving rationally. It doesn't mean that the number of times he was tased was justified. It doesn't mean that police followed proper procedure overall. It is one piece of a puzzle for the public to have as more information. If information is accurate, it is better to have more than less. Of course, the presence of a toxicology report was criticized by such outlets as Vice and The Intercept as a smear against Anderson. I say it's not. I say it's a piece of relevant information. Doesn't tell you everything you need to know, but tells you something. A piece of less relevant information in judging police culpability was the fact that Anderson was a teacher. I said that. I don't want to erase the man's history or not give you his biography or not make him seem like a full person. But in evaluating what the police did that day, they couldn't have known he was a teacher. They couldn't have, I guess, known he was on cocaine, but they could have judged, okay, this is a person perhaps not operating at the top of his faculties. The LA Times prominently leans into the fact that he was a teacher in a story headlined LAPD's repeat tasing of teacher who died appears excessive, experts say. I'd like to weigh in to say that the expert analysis is quite relevant and that he was a vacationing teacher is irrelevant to the incident. Online, on Twitter, Anderson's job status was commonly cited by activists, as was another aspect of the story, which has never been established. Benjamin Crump, lawyer for George Floyd's family, tweeted, On January 3rd, Keenan Anderson was reportedly involved in a traffic accident, and when LAPD arrived, they restrained and repeatedly tased him on the ground. The 31-year-old English teacher died of cardiac arrest hours later in the hospital. Was this repeated use of the taser necessary? That's a good question. But the sentiment doesn't indicate that anything happened between the arrival of the LAPD, right? He writes, when the LAPD arrived, they restrained and repeatedly tased him. So it doesn't indicate that there was many minutes as there were, and I want to, and I can't play it all for you. In fact, there's a seven minute gap in the video, but between the police arriving and then Anderson fleeing, and then the police attempting to restrain and tase Anderson. Sirius XM host and immigrant rights activist Kasim Rashid tweets, Kenan Anderson, a 31-year-old high school teacher and father, stopped LA police for help after an accident. They instead cuffed him, pinned him, and tased him repeatedly as he begged them to stop. Anderson was not the one who called the cops. He was found running in the street and pointed out as being involved in the accident, possibly as having caused the accident. That is a little unclear. Anderson said, they're trying to kill me, please help me, and a couple other statements that didn't make a lot of sense, like, I had a stunt today. He repeated, a stunt. Kirk Acevedo, with 223,000 followers, writes, Keenan Anderson was a high school English teacher and father who called the police for help after a car accident. Instead, police restrained him and repeatedly tased him with 50,000 volts. Again, it's not how it happened. And here is Oleyemi Oloren, a New York-based public defender, a political commentator. She has 100,000 followers. She advocates for the prison abolition movement. It gets so exhausting trying to figure out a new way to tell the world the same shit repeatedly. I just, like, what words to come up with to say how f***ing wrong it is, how unnecessary it is, how there's no reason, no justification under the sun for why a 31-year-old man gets into a car accident. And he calls the police for help because he had a he got into a car accident. He has an anxiety attack and they fucking kill him. Well, maybe some of that happened, 
but almost certainly some of it did not happen, and he did die, and it is important to figure out why and who should be held accountable. The positive thing, if you want to call it that, is that I do think this is what Los Angeles is trying to do. I don't have implicit faith in the new mayor, Karen Bass's willingness or ability to do the right thing, whatever that is. But we are generally seeing the power structure taking the correct steps in pursuing justice. In this horrific tragedy, there's another sign of progress, in a way. And it's when you contrast the reactions and emotions to the killing and even non-killing of African Americans that happened right after George Floyd's murder. You remember the case of Jacob Blake, the Wisconsin man who was shot by police after refusing orders and attempted to enter a car with children inside? Blake was holding a knife the entire time, which police saw, which is quite visible on footage that was later shown to the public. But in the moment, prominent voices, including Benjamin Crump, spread the message that the police had shot another unarmed black man. CNN at the time put the question to Crump directly. Was he armed at the time? Based on everything we know, he was not armed at the time. He was armed. Made a huge difference in the public's reaction. Because when word went out that another unarmed black man was shot and many said killed, emotions ran high. The Milwaukee Bucks refused to play their scheduled game based on the killing of an unarmed black man. Protesters flooded into Kenosha. Counter-protesters did too. A mentally disturbed man attacked an improperly armed young guy named Kyle Rittenhouse. He was shot dead, was the disturbed man. Another protester attacked Rittenhouse with a skateboard. He was shot dead. You gotta think the misinformation, if it were replaced by information, there was a good chance that none of that would have happened. There's often misinformation in the wake of a horrific police killing. But two, two plus years ago, the media was less cautious about spreading misinformation. Of course, it can be argued that for 100, 200 years before that, the media erred on the side of police. But err, they did, and they have been. Remember the case of Micaiah Bryant, the 16-year-old shot to death in Columbus, Ohio, the very day of the Derek Chauvin verdict? Bryant's aunt was widely quoted when she spoke to cameras about the death of her 15-year-old niece. The aunt got the age wrong. The aunt also said the niece, Micaiah, was the one who called the police, an untrue assertion. And then the aunt said this. Yeah, she had a knife for hand, but it was way before they shot her. She had already dropped the knife. She had not dropped the knife. She was mid-swing about to plunge it into the girl she was fighting with's chest. The officer in that tragic shooting, as with Jacob Blake, was eventually, and I would say properly, cleared. And there was a discussion about the propriety of police always going for kill shots instead of trying to shoot a limb. But the false narrative set in, aided by prominent news outlets spreading misinformation. April 21, 2021, Morning Edition tweet, NPR. Micaiah Bryan felt she was in danger and called the Columbus police, according to her aunt. She was then shot and killed by an officer. New York Daily News, April 20th, 2021. Ohio cops shoot and kill 16-year-old black girl Micaiah Bryant shortly before the Derek Chauvin verdict. Reports say Bryant's aunt said the teen herself called 911 during a preceding incident. That same exact bit of misinformation is going on in the Keenan Anderson case. And there's always going to be conflicting reports and misleading reports in the wake of one of these killings. Activists are want to frame the victims in the most favorable light. And yeah, again, I'll say it for years, the police account was the only one that was reported and it led to a lot of abuse. But for a time, the correction was to instinctively credit 
the biggest critics of police, calling Benjamin Crump, for instance, who does important civil rights work, the attorney general of black America. Crump, by the way, also made key misstatements in the wake of the killing, not just of Blake, but in the case of another client of his, Breonna Taylor. He, like all other parties, has an agenda. And his words, no matter if you think they're righteous, cannot be reported as inherently right. The pretty slick but far from dispositive video the LAPD put together has been criticized by police critics as just that, too slick, an edited narrative that doesn't give the entire story. I'm not saying it does. A real investigation will hopefully get further along that road. But this was the promise of police body cams that the public would know. It was sold to police departments with the argument that, hey, if it's true that you, the police, are blamed for acts which aren't improper, wouldn't you want more video to show the fuller picture? Right? And some good department said yes, and some had to be forced into saying yes. But it was a compelling argument. Now that we're getting... What was argued for, a fuller picture. We can't advocate throwing it out as mere propaganda. Kenan Anderson's death was absolutely a tragedy. It's good, however, that there wasn't a burn-it-all-down reaction. And I'm further glad that institutions, police, media, officials, are not contributing to inaccuracies that are going around. Mayor Bass released a statement, which read in part, No matter what these investigations determine, the need for urgent change is clear. We must reduce the use of force overall. And now the spiel, public servant, private server. Journalist Ron Fournier of the National Journal calls Hillary Clinton a payphone candidate in an iPhone world. I would say her defensive posture is the classic raise the drawbridge, not invite the commoners to the palace grounds. For a lot of Democrats, I think that Hillary Clinton or the idea of a Hillary Clinton presidency is a little like the required course in college that you don't get around to until senior year. Yeah, 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 I'm going to get to it. Yeah, I know it'll be good for me. I'll probably learn a lot. But instead, what you do, you took that fun elective introduction to hope and change, and now you're stuck and you kind of owe it to yourself. You got to elect Hillary, but it's not going to be fun. On the substance of all those emails that Hillary Clinton deleted because she didn't want to carry two phones. You know, her defense was, hey, we're all fighting the war on clutter, right? Looking back, it would have been better if I'd simply used a second email account and carried a second phone. But at the time, this didn't seem like an issue. I mean, really, this whole thing, it's just so simple. It's that simple explanation. That's why offering the explanation took eight days, a scathing SNL sketch, a week's worth of cable talk show fodder, An entire slate of Sunday shows with this as the central debate topic. That's why you had to have a hastily arranged news conference and a background that literally read Security Council of the United Nations to clear this up because really it was just a simple understanding. Oopsie. Well, 
there are some substantive criticisms of what she said. So she says she deleted only personal emails, and we know that must be true because she says so. Her private server was secure, which we also know is true because, you know, she says so. The emails deleted were personal, like those between her and Bill. That's, of course, that's true because, you know, she says it's true, even though a Bill Clinton spokesman says the former president has only sent two emails in his entire life. We know that neither of them was to Lindsey Graham. Anyway, she didn't break the rules, the rules being defined, I guess, as what she says the rules are because another State Department employee was fired for breaking those same rules and because there has been a State Department rule since 2005 requiring State Department officials to use official email. I checked. The rule does not have a clause that says, unless Hillary says otherwise. But it was clear how Mrs. Clinton wished to frame all of this because twice in that press conference, she used the just trying to lighten my purse defense. Looking back, it would have been better for me to use two separate phones and two email accounts. I thought using one device would be simpler. And obviously it hasn't worked out that way. Beyond the email issue, here are the issues for Hillary Clinton's chances of becoming president. It's extremely likely she's going to get the nomination, but after that, I wonder. I wonder because I have noted that in my lifetime as a cognizant human, the more likable candidate in the general election has always won. Carter was seen as a more likable fellow than Ford. Maybe in retrospect, Ford seems like a hell fellow, but then Carter seemed fresher, more likable. He won. Reagan more likable than Carter. Reagan more likable than Mondale. He won. George H.W. Bush. All right. Not exactly the loosest dude on the dance floor, but more likable than Dukakis. But then Clinton was more likable than Bush, and Clinton was more likable than Dole, the hatchet man Dole. And George W. Bush, call him a doofus, call him a pike, or whatever you want to call him, but he was definitely a lot more fun and more likable than Al Gore or John Kerry. And Obama, extremely likable, even more so than John McCain, who turned a little sour. And Romney, who was Romney. The rule, the more likable guy wins, that is true for the general. It's not true in the primaries, I should say. Ideology comes into play. Certain candidates with no shot of winning, really, like Mike Huckabee, those are actually likable guys. And primary voters are often more informed than the general election. So therefore, in the general election, personality, likability can be a factor. I will acknowledge, when I'm talking about likability extremely subjective. What the hell is likability? It's kind of like a Rorschach test, right? Can't using the word likability just be cover for justifying racism, justifying sexism? Yes, 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 and yes. And also, if you really love a candidate or that candidate's policies, that candidate's going to seem more likable to you. I also want to say that I don't think likability is the inverse of what we call negatives. So pollsters will tell you, pollsters ask, do you have a generally positive or negative opinion of this candidate? And someone like Hillary Clinton has very high negatives. She's very well known. She has higher positives than negatives, but very high negatives. But is that so important? I mean, we've only been asking about positives and negatives for 30 years, let's say, so we can't go back. But it seems to me that Abraham Lincoln had really high negatives. Kennedy had really high negatives. I can prove it. Both guys were shot. But I do think to get something done, to stand for something, especially in this highly politicized world, you have to probably piss people off. So I'm not necessarily talking about negatives. I mean, candidates collect negatives like cars on the Paris to Dakar rally collect dents. It goes with the territory. But issue after issue where Mrs. Clinton is defensive or seen as imperious, it's going to be extremely off-putting to the still majority of voters who say that they 
would consider casting a ballot for her. It can help her. And complicating her is the fact that the media, the unbiased media, you know, the networks, the New York Times, CNN, the ones that aren't trying to put their thumb on the scale too much, they will always play up these sort of issues for a few reasons. One, they really are missteps. Two, the missteps involve communication and transparency and making reporters scramble for credentials. That will get a disproportionate amount of coverage. I've also noted that the nature of the media is to be really full-throated and big, bold, sometimes scathing in your analysis of the theatrics of a campaign. When it comes to policy, I think their definition of fairness, balance, objectivity, whatever you want to call it, I think it's more muted. So even if an analysis piece in a newspaper could make the point that Hillary Clinton's view of the steps the U.S. should take in Ukraine is much more sensible than the policy prescriptions of her rivals, that won't appear high up and boldly stated. But when you're talking about how she acts in a press conference and the theatrics thereof, you will get phrases like you did in the New York Times today saying that Clinton devolved into increasingly defensive responses that piece went on to note that she did not look happy. The fact is that Hillary Clinton and her team, their extreme aversion to openness, their single-minded message control, their almost paranoid avoidance of improvisation, it is really off-putting to a public awash in Twitter and weaned on reality TV. But in the barbed and booby-trapped world of politics, it probably is the best way to carry out an agenda. That's attention. And the question is, will her tactics on the way to gaining the presidency be so off-putting that she will never get the chance to be an effective president? And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Cory Wara and senior produced, if we want to use that as a verb, by Joel Patterson. I'll talk to you Monday. <laughs>